This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Washington, 21st of March, 1803. Dear Sir, I had a long conversation with Captain Murray of the Constellation. He says that at any time from March to the latter end of September, while he was on the Tripoli station, peace might have been obtained for $5,000, and that that opportunity has been lost by the delays of Morris in the vicinity of Gibraltar and in going up the Mediterranean, but that he is much afraid that now that they are no longer at war with Sweden, matters accommodated with France, and are no further danger apprehended by the Bashaw from his brother, a peace cannot be obtained but upon very extravagant terms. The late accounts from Algiers and Tunis appear unpleasant. No time, it seems, should be lost in sending the stores to Algiers and the appointment of a proper character in the Mediterranean to have the superintendence of the Barbary affairs appear indispensable. Will you be able to find such one? I feel more uneasy about the state of affairs in that quarter than in relation to the Louisiana business. With sincere respect and attachment, your obedient servant, Albert Gallatin. The United States was in the second year of its war in the Mediterranean when 1803 rolled around, and it seemed as if there was no end to the conflict in sight anytime soon. As discussed in episode 3.10, Morocco, which had entered the conflict on the side of Tripoli in 1802, had been convinced just as quickly by an American envoy and the presence of American warships in the Straits of Gibraltar to bow out of the contest. However, the original combatant, Tripoli, seemed as intractable as ever, and with little to show for the expensive squadron plying the waters of the Mediterranean, the Jefferson administration had to ask itself some hard questions about how to proceed forward in that corner of the world, at the same time as they were navigating the diplomatic waters in and around the issues on the Mississippi River that we've been discussing the last few episodes. It is in this assessment that we find ourselves as we begin this episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I bid you a warm welcome, dear listener. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Before we dive back into what has been dubbed the First Barbary War, I'd like to take a moment to thank Johnny Langton of the Kings and Queens podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. Johnny just started on his journey through the history of the monarchs of England beginning in 1066, but already it's been a great lesson and I look forward to each episode as it always provides some additional insight that I hadn't heard previously on the featured monarch. I'll post a link on the source notes page for this episode, but the Kings and Queens podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts, Anchor.fm, or on Spotify. I'd also like to take a moment to mention our sponsor, the Hero Soap Company. Given the current state of affairs, cleanliness is more important than ever, 
and the Hero Soap Company uses natural ingredients and essential oils to craft products that will soothe and cleanse your skin. Even better, they donate a percentage of their proceeds to charities that support veterans, first responders, and their families. By using the direct link on the website or going to Hero Soap Company, that's all one word, dot com, and using the promo code PRESIDENCIES at checkout, You'll not only support those who have served the U.S. on the front lines at home and abroad, you'll also help me to offset the cost of this podcast, ensuring that I'm able to keep going on this journey for years to come. The Jefferson administration was greatly troubled about the state of things in the Mediterranean in the first part of 1803. The lofty rhetoric of his report in his first annual message to Congress on the initial squadron being sent to that area having, quote, dispelled the danger in 1801, was replaced by much more sober language in his second annual message in 1802, reporting that an American vessel had fallen into Tripolitan hands and, quote, the captain, one American seaman, and two others of color were being held as prisoners. With the Treasury Department reporting that retaining the squadron in the Mediterranean would cost over half a million dollars a year, President Jefferson had to consider whether this was a fight worth fighting. In the short term, he issued orders to reduce the force in the Mediterranean, replacing the two largest frigates in the squadron with smaller vessels. Long term, Jefferson was starting to get reports that made him think that other replacements may be needed in the squadron, starting at the top. Commodore Richard Morris had just arrived in the Mediterranean theater in the spring of 1802, but his actions since had given reason for unease. He had ignored his official instructions from Secretary of the Navy Robert Smith and instead taken his ship, the USS Chesapeake, quote, to convoy a number of Swedish and American merchantmen around the northern shore of the Mediterranean and call at Laverno in Tuscany on the western coast of modern-day Italy to pick up an American diplomat, James Cathcart, to negotiate with the Tripolitan Pasha, Yusuf Karamanli. On August 18th, Morris and his ship started from Gibraltar, where they had been positioned in anticipation of an ultimately unnecessary strike against Morocco. But due to intense headwinds and delaying calms, the Chesapeake didn't arrive in Laverno until October 12th. When they arrived, they actually found another American warship, the USS Constellation, commanded by Captain Alexander Murray. Murray provided Morris with some intelligence from Tripoli, as his ship, which had come over from the other side of the Mediterranean, had initially gone there to link up with the naval squadron, since that's where you'd expect the ships and the squadron commander to be, as Tripoli was the enemy they were supposed to be blockading and attacking. Murray's report, however, wasn't reserved for the Commodore. Captain Murray wrote back to Secretary of the Navy Robert Smith, outlining some of the difficulties in blockading Tripoli. As he reported to the Secretary, quote, Although we keep up the blockade with all our diligence, we dare not venture too close in, on account of sudden calms and no anchorage till you are nearly on the beach. If we are still to carry on this kind of warfare, be assured, sir, that it will be necessary to increase our force with brigs or schooners. The Peace Establishment Act that had been crafted under the advisement of then-Secretary of the Navy Benjamin Stoddard and pushed through Congress at the end of the Quasi-War had provided for selling most of the small vessels in the Navy. But Murray pointed out to the current Navy Secretary as to why these smaller ships were necessary. Larger ships could not safely navigate in a harbor like that of Tripoli for fear of running aground. Murray's recommendations, however, did not stop with military matters, as he saw an opportunity for a diplomatic peace if the administration was willing to change its policy and pay a nominal tribute to the Tripolitan Pasha. 
Again, from Murray's letter, quote, America hath certainly shown a very laudable pride and dignity in her efforts to abolish the obnoxious custom of paying tribute. But unless the European nations cooperate more generally with us and abolish that narrow-minded policy that yet prevails with some of the most potent powers much better situated than we are for keeping up perpetual warfare with them, or till they are brought to proper terms, it will be more prudent for us also to submit to the indignity at the expense of our pride. Murray, possibly in combination with others, was able to convince Commodore Morris of the importance of negotiating with Yusuf Karamanli, as Morris wrote to Secretary Smith on November 30th, 1802, that, quote, No doubt but peace is made with Tripoli ere this. There was nothing wanting but a negotiator. Luckily, he already had one of those on board, James Cathcart. The ultimate plan was to head to Tripoli so that Cathcart could enter into negotiations, but Commodore Morris appeared to be in no hurry to get there. The Chesapeake remained for a few weeks in Laverno, finally setting sail on November 3rd. Morris would later claim, quote, that southerly winds and hard weather kept him from sailing sooner, but the records of the time, including the Chesapeake's own logbook, don't substantiate this. When they finally got way, the Chesapeake sailed first to Malta, where, due first to a necessary repair of the ship's bowsprit, then a case of influenza breaking out on board, they were forced to remain until December 25th. Even then, however, they did not sail for Tripoli, but rather returned to Italy, in this case Syracuse, seeking supplies. When they arrived back at Malta on January 4th, 1803, Commodore Morris found that they had been joined there by the USS New York and the USS John Adams. This time, it was the John Adams that needed repair. Even after that was done, though, Morris delayed five days until January 30th to sail. Unfortunately, bad weather, including strong westerly winds, kept the squadron stuck at Malta until February 19th, when they finally sailed for Tunis. Wait, what? Tunis isn't Tripoli. It's hundreds of kilometers away. The U.S. Consul at Tunis, William Eden, had requested a meeting with Commodore Morris and Cathcart before they went on to Tripoli. Eden was able to share with the two that the Bay of Tunis, Hamouda Ibn Ali, was demanding that the U.S. give him a 36-gun frigate in exchange for retaining friendly relations. The Bay was also asserting his right to continue to trade with Tripoli despite the U.S. blockade and warned that he, quote, would resort to reprisals on American trade if any of his ships were taken or detained by the American squadron. Commodore Morris, during this time, also made his way to Algiers to meet with De Mustafa al-Sadi Subin Ibrahim, who was upset that, rather than the annual shipment of timber and maritime stores that had been agreed to in the Algerine Treaty of 1795, he had instead been sent $30,000 in cash. I know, a bad problem to have, right? But a deal was a deal, and he wanted his timber and maritime stores. Once these immediate concerns were addressed, surely the Commodore would head to Tripoli, right? If that was your guess, dear listener, then I unfortunately have to say that you're wrong. Commodore Morris and the Chesapeake set sail for Gibraltar, where they anchored on March 23, 1803. At this point, not only was he ignoring the main point of his mission, which was to put pressure on Tripoli, but he was violating direct orders from his superiors. Secretary Smith had written to Morris on October 23rd, directing him to send both the Chesapeake and the Constellation back to the U.S. 
Captain Murray aboard the Constellation had received the orders prior to Moore's, with Smith's unsealed letter arriving in his hands on December 10th. He sent on the letter to Moore's, but Murray did not wait for an order from Moore's to depart, but rather went ahead and sailed his ship back to the U.S. We'll come back to this in a minute. Commodore Morris received the order on January 4th, but did not immediately comply with it. Again, as with his other actions, he had an excuse at the ready. Morris would claim that, quote, in his opinion, the frigate was in no condition to cross the Atlantic in winter. He also justified going to Gibraltar rather than Tripoli, as the stores and supplies that had been sent for the squadron had been sent to Gibraltar, and the Navy Department had made no arrangements for them to be transported any further than that. It wouldn't be until April 6th that Morris would release the Chesapeake from his command and comply with Secretary Smith's order. By that point, though he had no way of knowing it, his fate was by and large sealed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Remember how Captain Murray was not afraid to share his two cents from abroad? Well, the USS Constellation arrived at the Washington Navy Yard on March 15, 1803, and Murray was quickly making his opinions known to those at the top levels of the government. Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin had initially felt, like Jefferson, that a show of force was needed to bring the Barbary powers into line rather than continuing the policy of tribute from the Washington and Adams administrations. However, it was growing increasingly difficult to make the numbers on the balance sheet add up as no additional revenues were coming in while naval expenditures were continuing to climb and there was no way to predict what the final price tag would be for the transcontinental expedition and any territorial acquisitions to come out of the negotiations in Paris. By the time Murray arrived in Washington, Gallatin had been convinced that it would be cheaper to just pay a tribute to Tripoli in exchange for peace and the information provided by Murray gave him added ammunition. Murray reported his belief that peace could already have been purchased if Commodore Morris would have proceeded straight on to Tripoli. Yusuf Karamondli had been fending off an internal challenge from his older brother Hamet and had been desperate for additional funds. However, since then, not only had the Tripolitan Pasha negotiated new tributes from Sweden, but he had placated Hamet with a governorship. Any peace that could be worked out now would likely come at a higher cost for the U.S., all because Morris had dilly-dallied around the Mediterranean rather than doing his duty, or so Murray alleged. In Gallatin, he found a willing audience, and Gallatin, in turn, would bring the matter to the president's attention while Jefferson was on his brief trip back to Monticello at the end of the congressional session. Jefferson wrote to Gallatin on March 28, 1803, that, quote, I have for some time believed that Commodore Morris's conduct require investigation. His progress from Gibraltar has been astonishing. He was willing to give Morris at least a sliver of a chance to justify his actions, for he explained to Gallatin, quote, I know of but one supposition which can cover him. That is, that he has so far mistaken the object of his mission as to spend his time in convoying. I do not know the fact. We gave great latitude to his discretion, believing he had an ambition to distinguish himself. 
Morris had certainly made a name for himself in the administration, though it was not quite the impression that he likely intended. When Jefferson returned to the Capitol, he called his cabinet together on April 8th to discuss the situation, and the president put forward the question, quote, is there sufficient ground to recall Morris and institute inquiry into his conduct? At the moment, they felt that such a move was not justified given the intelligence before them, but they would be keeping an eye out for anything that might warrant taking action. Secretary of the Navy Robert Smith, in particular, was exasperated with the Commodore as the few reports that Morris had sent were, quote, disappointingly brief, uninformative, and most infrequent. Finally, on May 4th, he had had enough and fired off a letter to Morris asserting that, quote, I have not heard from you since the 30th November 1802, but I will not permit myself to suppose that you have not written since that period. Yet it is a subject of serious concern that we have not heard from you. I presume it would be superfluous to remind you of the absolute necessity of your writing frequently and keeping us informed of all your movements. Finally, in late May, the USS Chesapeake arrived back in the U.S. carrying a letter from Morris. But as with his previous dispatches, this one proved to be lacking in details. By that point, the administration had already started making moves. On May 19th, a letter from Secretary Smith was opened by Captain Edward Prable in Boston. Smith's orders to Prable, quote, You will assume the command of the frigate Constitution and have her put in a condition to sail at the shortest possible period. Who is this Captain Prable, you ask? I'll go ahead and admit that Prable is one of my favorite lesser-known figures in presidential history, so I'm giddy that I'm finally arrived at the point where I can tell you about him. Edward Prable was born in Falmouth, Massachusetts on August 15, 1761. Edward was in school in Northeast Massachusetts when the Revolution began, and he would soon be directly impacted by the conflict in a devastating way. On October 18, 1775, his hometown of Falmouth was shelled by a British squadron. As described by Prable biographer Christopher McKee, quote, Within 20 minutes, part of the village was blazing. A landing party from the British flotilla fired other buildings. By 6 p.m., the job was done. More than half the houses, including the Prable home on Thames Street, were afire. Two days later, the ruins of Falmouth were still burning. Edward would shortly after sign up for naval service and, as described by historian Frank Lambert, quote, earned a reputation for courage and judgment as a lieutenant in the American War of Independence. After being promoted to the rank of captain, he protected U.S. merchantmen engaged in the Far Eastern or China trade, and he became the first American naval officer to display the flag east of the Cape of Good Hope. Despite Prable being a Federalist, he had the confidence of the administration thanks to his friendship with Secretary of War Henry Dearborn, and Prable's name would be discussed in the administration's highest circles for a larger role in the conflict sooner rather than later. In the meantime, though, what was to be done with Morris? Despite the lack of details in his reports back to Washington, Morris was actually busy making preparations in the spring of 1803. With the situation with Morocco resolved and provisions procured, Morris was finally ready to act against Tripoli. His orders allowed him to negotiate with any of the Barbary powers himself, but with the condition that, quote, circumstances made it necessary for him to act without advice and assistance. That condition would not be in place so long as James Cathcart was around. And Morris felt that Cathcart, who was still traveling with the squadron, was not the man for the job. 
Thus, as described by McKee, quote, In a move that did nothing to endear him to the Secretary of the Navy, Morris took advantage of this clause and ordered Cathcart back to Lagorno in the frigate Adams. On April 11th, Morris and the remainder of the squadron set sail for Tripoli. After a stopover at Malta to repair damage to one of the ships, the squadron arrived off the coast of Tripoli on May 22nd, and the frigate Adams joined them four days later. Upon his arrival, Commodore Morris put into action a plan that had been put forward by Naval Secretary Smith, a, quote, simultaneous blockade and negotiation. There was a problem with this plan, though. Four ships did not make for an effective blockade. The Tripolitan Navy had nine smaller gunboats that they were effectively utilizing for harbor defense. The American ships made little headway the first few days, but finally, as noted by McKee, quote, during the evening hours of 27th May, Morris was given an opportunity that came to no other U.S. commander for the rest of the war, a chance to get between the Tripolitan gunboats and their base. The Commodore and his squadron were unable to take much advantage of the situation, however, due to the timing. Though they maneuvered to attack the gunboats that had gone out to escort a 14-gun Tripolitan vessel into port, as the sun sank beyond the horizon and night settled in, they had trouble seeing their opponents except for, quote, as a flash of their guns revealed their position, and the engagement gradually fizzled out. Morris had also used his time to make overtures for negotiations, but Yusuf kept him waiting until May 28th when he sent his reply. As was communicated to Morris by his intermediary, the Danish consul, despite Morris's boast of having a much larger force than he really did, quote, he, Yusuf, did not fear the forces that the United States of America might bring against Tripoli, and by threatening no advances to a conclusion of peace would be made. Despite this rebuff, Morris appealed to Yusuf personally, and on June 7th, the Commodore and six officers landed and were escorted by the French consul to the home of the Prime Minister of Tripoli, Sidi Mohamed Digis. It was to Digis that Morris handed over a proposal for a peace treaty. The next day, they returned to the table, and both sides offered up written versions of their peace terms. The Tripolitans demanded $200,000 and for the U.S. to pay for the expenses of the war. Though Digis indicated a willingness to negotiate down, Morris countered with the offer of $5,000 on the occasion of the arrival of a new U.S. consul to Tripoli and, at the end of five years, and the condition that Tripoli had faithfully observed all conditions of the treaty, an additional payment of $10,000. You don't have to be a math major to see the great divide between the two proposals, and thus, negotiations broke down. Morris, who to be fair had very little experience in diplomatic situations coming in, proved to be completely inflexible, and thus, Diggies ordered him to leave. Morris not only left the negotiating table, but he set sail back from Malta the following day. As noted by McKee, quote, No one in the squadron could have helped noticing that the Commodore's precipitate departure coincided with the time when Mrs. Morris, who was at Malta, was expected to, and did, give birth to a child. Morris had left two ships to keep up the blockade, but upon his arrival in Malta, Morris sent orders for them to break off, and as of June 25th, quote, all remaining American naval forces left the Tripolitan coast. That's right. Despite putting the pressure on Tripoli being item number one on the agenda as dictated by Jefferson and his administration, Morris 
was abandoning the whole effort. McKee does make some valid points in an attempt to justify the call, but I think you can imagine what the reaction was back in D.C. when they heard the news. Meanwhile, Captain Prable was diligently working to get the USS Constitution, which had been mothballed since the end of the Quasi-War a few years previous, back into working order. While directing the readying of his ship, in late May, Prable received word that he was to be put in command of the squadron to relieve Morris and his forces. Though he admits that we cannot definitely say as such, based on the primary sources still at our disposal, McKee asserts that, quote, There can be no question that Secretary of War Dearborn's confidence in Prable played a large part in the selection of the relatively junior Captain Prable as Commodore of the Squadron sent to the Mediterranean in the summer of 1803. Prable, however, would not be the only one traveling across the Atlantic with a mission. Tobias Lear, the late Washington's former personal secretary and the one-time U.S. Consul in Saint-Domingue, who we last encountered back in episode 3.11, was called back into service by the Jefferson administration. Lear wrote to former Senator John Langdon in June 1803 that, quote, I have agreed to accept the appointment of envoy and consul general from the U.S. to the coast of Barbary. The salary is $4,000 per annum with permission to do business as a merchant. After his return to the U.S. from Saint-Domingue in 1802, Lear had retreated to his home, Walnut Hill Farm, and sought to put his finances in order as he found himself in a troubling situation. He sent a request to Congress to be compensated, quote, for his losses while on the nation's business. Despite Secretary of State Madison's written support of his compensation, it wouldn't be until January 1803 that Congress would take up the matter. Ultimately, though the House Claims Committee would acknowledge on February 18th that, quote, they believe his, i.e. Lear's, sufferings to have been peculiarly great, and his conduct highly patriotic, they still weren't agreeing to compensate him for anything. As noted by Lear biographer Ray Bryden, quote, the House quite candidly decided it didn't want to set a precedent. This new appointment, and in particular, the provision that he would still be able to engage in private business ventures at the same time, provided Lear with a sense of relief, especially as he had recently married for the third time. As we've discussed in the past, Episodes 1.19 and 1.34, Lear had suffered tragic emotional losses in his first two marriages. His first wife, Polly, died during the yellow fever outbreak of 1793 in Philadelphia, while his second wife, Fanny, had died from tuberculosis in 1796. As with his second wife, Tobias connected with his third wife through his connections with the Washington family. It is likely that Tobias and Francis Dandridge Henley who, like his second wife, was also known as Fanny, had known each other for some time. But after his return from Saint-Domingue, the two married. Tobias was a little over 17 years older than his newest bride. But it seems, at least from existing sources, that theirs was, as described by Bryden, quote, a passionate love affair. Fanny would accompany her new husband across the Atlantic aboard the Constitution to take up his post in Algiers. Commodore Prable's official orders were issued on July 13, 1803, and the administration made sure there was no confusion about the primary purpose of his mission. Quote, It is the expectation of the President that you will, without intermission, maintain, during the season in which it may be safely done, an effectual blockade of Tripoli, and that you will, by all the means in your power, annoy the enemy. Before he could tackle the enemy, Prable had enough stress on his hands to annoy even the most patient man. 
In addition to trying to get a ship that had been mothballed in a serviceable shape to sail across the Atlantic into hostile waters, he had to recruit a crew with offers of low pay at a time when most of the fishermen were at sea. Thankfully for Prable, the declaration of war in Europe was driving foreign sailors to the U.S., so by July 21st, he had recruited the crew he needed. By that time, though, grumblings were already starting about how long it was taking for him to sail. As he wrote to Secretary of War Dearborn on July 19th, quote, I'm extremely hurt that any persons should have made the observations hinted at in your letter, but it convinces me that they are not acquainted with the duty I have had to perform or the difficulties I have had to encounter. By August 12th, however, all the hurdles had been overcome, and at daylight, with the Lears safely on board, Commodore Prable ordered the USS Constitution to weigh anchor, and the ship started making its way out of Boston Harbor, bound east for the Mediterranean. A couple of weeks later, another key mission for the Jefferson administration would be launched, headed in the opposite direction. Meriwether Lewis's replacement as Jefferson's private secretary had arrived to take up his post in June. Jefferson had written to Lewis Harvey on May 28th, apologizing for disrupting his plans, quote, two months beyond the time I had expected, but expressing, quote, the inconveniences of wanting a secretary, and kindly but urgently asking him, quote, to come on so soon as your own convenience will permit. As noted by historian Dumas Malone, quote, at that time, Meriwether Lewis was still camping in the unfinished East Room. Just where the captain's successor lived is uncertain. Probably he had one of the rooms upstairs and there pursued legal studies during most of his afternoons and evenings, as Jefferson had assured him he might. Harvey's arrival, in addition to being of benefit to Jefferson in managing his affairs, was also a visible symbol of the change that was to come. On July 5th, Lewis bid what could possibly have been his final farewell to President Jefferson. The path ahead for him was quite uncertain. Not only did he still not know whether William Clark would accept the offer to be his co-lead on the expedition, or if they would find all the supplies that he had arranged to be shipped along the way, or what kind of men he would find to join them on the mission, but just by its nature, the prospect of venturing into parts of the continent that those of European descent had not, as far as they knew, ever traversed, was a leap into the unknown. There were no guarantees that Meriwether Lewis or any of his party would ever return. Despite Lewis's original plans to be in St. Louis by August 1st, due to delays far beyond the scope of this podcast to discuss, Lewis hadn't made it further than Pittsburgh by that date. However, there was at least a glimmer of hope. Two days prior, the mail had brought a letter from William Clark accepting Lewis's offer to serve as co-lead of the expedition. As Lewis's delays continued, the two wrote back and forth to plan out how to recruit for the mission. Matters of life or death for the team could very well depend on the strengths of its members, so Lewis stressed his colleague that there must be, quote, a judicious selection of our men. Their qualifications should be such as perfectly fit them for the service. Otherwise, they will rather clog than further the objects in view. Finally, on October 15th, Lewis arrived at Clarksville in the Indiana Territory, and the two would-be explorers, whose names have become synonymous in the historical annals, finally came together to launch what would come to be known as the Corps of Discovery. Lewis had already sent back word to Jefferson that, at this point, it was not likely that they would make any progress up the Missouri River before having to settle into winter quarters, 
but Lewis offered an alternative. He and Clark could set off on individual excursions, with Lewis traveling, quote, up the Kansas River toward Santa Fe, and Clark explore, quote, some other portion of the country in order to gather intelligence and justify the expense of the expedition to Congress. Though he had received numerous dispatches from Lewis since his departure from Washington, it was after receiving the one of October 3rd that Jefferson felt motivated to reply, though he asserted that his delay was, quote, an expectation daily of getting the enclosed account of Louisiana. This letter of November 16th allowed Jefferson the opportunity of sending Lewis various bits of intelligence that had been received, including the text of the Louisiana Purchase. But it quickly becomes clear while reading the letter what Jefferson's main motivation was. The idea of Lewis proceeding towards Santa Fe had spooked him, and he asserted that, quote, all danger of Spanish opposition avoided. We are strongly of opinion here that you had better not enter the Missouri, chill the spring. He did qualify this with an assurance that, quote, as you have a view of all circumstances on the spot, we do not pretend to enjoin it, but leave it to your own judgment in which we have entire confidence. Despite these assurances, he warned that, quote, such an excursion as proposed will be more dangerous than the main expedition up the Missouri and would, by an accident to you, hazard our main object, which, since the acquisition of Louisiana, interest every body in the highest degree. The object of your mission is single, the direct water communication from sea to sea formed by the bed of the Missouri and perhaps the Oregon. By having Mr. Clark with you, we consider the expedition as double-manned and therefore the less liable to failure, for which reason neither of you should be exposed to risk by going off of your line. Historian Stephen Ambrose interpreted Lewis's proposal for the winter expedition as being, quote, the president's aide at work, a zealot protecting his boss from the Federalist jackals in Congress. Here was the partisan politician trying to give his party a winning issue in the upcoming 1804 presidential campaign. Here, too, was the young adventurer, resigned to having to build a winter camp near St. Louis rather than getting on up the Missouri a few hundred miles and refusing to submit to the anticipated dullness of an army camp life for five months. But, alive though his mind was, here was a young man who had not thought things through. At this point, Lewis and Clark were more valuable to Jefferson alive, making their way across to the Pacific and back, than in engaging in unnecessary and potentially hazardous joyrides in other directions. Jefferson's assignment for them was clear. Go west and don't stop until you hit the ocean. Ultimately, Lewis abandoned the plan of winter excursions, but not due to Jefferson's urgings, as he didn't receive the president's message for some time. Rather, when he arrived in St. Louis on December 8th, Lewis realized just how much work would be needed to get the expedition ready to set off up the Missouri in the spring. This was no time for idle side trips. As he ventured further west and further away from the president, it seems that Lewis did start to shed that prior role as aide and grow into a new role as a leader. New roles were the order of the day in 1803 for the young men in Jefferson's life. In the spring of 1803, both of Jefferson's sons-in-law put their names forward for election to the U.S. House of Representatives. Due to congressional redistricting after the 1800 census, the incumbent congressman of the 16th district was forced to run in another district, and John Wales Epps ran virtually unopposed in the 16th. 
As he wrote to Jefferson on April 14th, in the first county in his district that voted, quote, I lost but nine votes and near 600 polled, i.e. voted. Thomas Mann Randolph, however, not only had a strong incumbent to beat in his quest for a congressional seat, but he was facing a staunch supporter of the president. Samuel Jordan Cabell had been in the House since 1795, and in February 1801, when the House held Jefferson's fate in its hands, Cabell reportedly lay, quote, two nights on a blanket to make him president. This challenge put Jefferson in an awkward position, and he wrote to Representative Cabell on April 25th, explaining that he didn't learn about Randolph's plans until they met on March 11th during Jefferson's quick trip back to Virginia. We'll never truly know how Jefferson advised Randolph, though he assured Cabell that, quote, the only conversation I ever had with him on the subject was one in which I endeavored to prepare him by calculation for a failure. But any attempt, if there was one by Jefferson, to dissuade Randolph didn't work. Ultimately, though it was a close election, Randolph won by 13 votes out of the 1,800 or so cast. Randolph, despite the victory, was at first pessimistic that Cabell would seek to contest the vote and that he would, quote, lose my seat. A month later, he wrote to Jefferson of, quote, a heavy anxiety of wanting the qualities and acquirements necessary for passing through the contest with honor, and asserting that the result was, quote, the most disagreeable to me. By June, the situation had changed as to where, in a letter drafted to Jefferson, but that it doesn't seem that he actually sent, Randolph reported that he had been assured by numerous individuals that, quote, my poll will bear the most rigid scrutiny, and my majority will increase upon it. So I believe. Given what we've already learned about Jefferson in the course of this series, it's easy to imagine that Jefferson was enthusiastic about the idea of having family with him in Washington, especially with the departure of Meriwether Lewis. However, this move would create more burdens for other members of the family, in particular, Randolph's wife, Martha. As described by Martha's biographer, Cynthia Kerner, quote, In Tom's absence, Martha assumed his place as his overseer's on-site supervisor, and she also served as a conduit between the men in Washington and the overseers at both Edge Hill, the Randolph's plantation, and Monticello. For Randolph, his election to Congress seems to have been more an exercise of vanity, as it meant that he would not be tending to his responsibilities at not only his estate, but that of his father-in-law. The burden would instead fall on Martha, in a way that it doesn't seem from all of my research that Maria, Jefferson's other daughter, experienced upon her husband's election. Speaking of, We've talked at some length previously about Randolph, in particular in episode 3.11, but it occurs to me that I haven't properly introduced John Wales Epps. Epps, like Randolph, had known Jefferson all his life and had grown up among the elites of Virginia. He had attended the University of Pennsylvania, then graduated from Hampton-Sydney College in Virginia in 1786. Following college, Epps studied the law and was admitted to the bar in 1794. Prior to his election to the U.S. House, he had served in the Virginia State House of Delegates starting in 1801. Epps was described by Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone as quote-unquote level-headed and not as temperamental and self-conscious as Randolph. When they ran for office, there was no way for either Randolph or Epps to have known that their election would mean that they'd play a role in legislating how to bring a land area that would nearly double the size of the nation into the Union. Nevertheless, As they headed to Washington to take their respective seats in the Congress set to convene on October 17th, 
Both men would provide for Jefferson not only familial company, but also trusted eyes, ears, and voices in Congress. Jefferson would need support in Washington that winter, for the autumn would bring not only a debate on the newly acquired territory of Louisiana, but also a new player was coming from distant shores. Since Robert Liston's departure as British minister to the U.S. in 1800, the post had been vacant, and the secretary of the legation, Edward Thornton, had been acting as an interim minister. However, in March 1803, Thornton wrote back to his government in London that he felt that there was a need for, quote, the appointment of a minister of appropriate rank to the post in Washington. Thornton admitted that there would be a challenge in filling the post with, quote, a man of rank and distinction, as, quote, he would find few men of education to associate with, and still fewer who were gentlemen in sentiment and manners. Still, the British government had agreed with Thornton and managed to find someone to accept the post. In the latter half of 1803, Anthony Mary made his way across the Atlantic to America, and his tenure as British minister to the U.S. would become one for the history books. That, however, we'll have to wait for another time, as our time together is drawing to a close. Thanks so much again to Johnny for providing the intro quote for this episode, and be sure to give the Kings and Queens podcast a listen once you're done with this episode. Special thanks also to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty for the intro and outro music for this episode. Links to Johnny's podcast, as well as past episodes of this podcast, more information about the Itinerant Band, as well as the Hero Soap Company, and more links and resources about various presidents can be found on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. I'd also like to take a moment to thank patrons of the podcast, Michelle and Kara, as well as a new anonymous patron. Thanks to their support, this is the first month since I started the podcast that I'm not using my personal funds to pay for the podcast hosting fee or the social media management system that I use behind the scenes. That provides me with more financial bandwidth to start looking at a timeline for technology upgrades, as well as ensuring that I have funds available to access more research materials. If you'd like to support the podcast by becoming a patron, just go to patreon.com forward slash presidencies and sign up. Supporting the podcast ensures that I can continue to provide quality content that elicits such reviews as the following from Podchaser. Coop1227 commented that, quote, I love that this podcast is very, all caps very, detailed. The only thing that I worry about at a year per president, I'm not sure Jerry will be around long enough to get to the later presidents. Thank you so much, Coop. And let me assure you that I'm taking the challenge as motivation to live as long as I can and will do everything in my power to make that happen. Howard from Plotting Through the Presidents, an excellent new podcast, which I highly recommend, by the way, had this to say, quote, meticulously researched and melodically related. This podcast is for lovers of deep history dives, and it doesn't disappoint. Thank you so much, Howard. Finally, Vicki from the Ransack History Podcast left the following review. Quote, This is an incredibly researched and well-delivered podcast. The host, Jerry, delivers an engaging and entertaining narrative on every episode. I've learned more about our presidents listening to this podcast than I ever did in school. Great show. Thanks so much, Vicki. Vicki and Eric have been great supporters of the podcast and have given presidencies a shout-out in numerous episodes of their States of History series, where they're going on a virtual road trip and exploring the historic sites, strange laws, and interesting tales of states on their virtual path. 
If you haven't checked it out yet, I highly recommend it. Just search for Ransack History wherever fine podcasts can be found. I've already added a number of places they've mentioned on the series to my list of must-sees. My final shout-out before we close out is to my husband Alex, who, beyond his constant support of my endeavors, also pitched in to do some of the audio editing for this episode. I can't thank him enough for all the ways that he supports me on our journey through life. If you're not connected to me on social media already, I can be found on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. If you'd like to shoot me an email, I can be reached at Presidencies Podcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.